Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, suicide awareness, limiting our kids' screen time during the summer and the Summer Special Olympics. But first... If you thought we'd have a little break from politics after the legislature and state party conventions, think again. President Trump has a visit scheduled to Duluth next Wednesday for a rally at the Duluth Entertainment Convention Center. MNN's Bill Werner joins us. Bill, what's fueling the president's visit, the U.S. House race in the 8th Congressional District in northeastern Minnesota? That's absolutely correct, Scott. Although, as our analysts will tell us in a minute, there are certainly other drivers and the side effects of the president's political medicine could be widespread. Republicans are pumped up about Trump's trip, to say the least. Republican Party of Minnesota Chair Jennifer Carnahan. We're incredibly excited to be welcoming President Trump back to our state next week. You know, with everything we have on the ballot this year and the importance that Minnesota will play at the national level in influencing the balance of power for the next two years, um, the final two years of the president's campaign, and all of the important opportunities we have to make Minnesota red, this couldn't come at a better time. Minnesota GOP Chair Jennifer Carnahan. On the political implications of the president's visit, let's tap the knowledge banks of two of the top political analysts in the state. First, Carleton College Professor Stephen Shear. Minnesota and the Duluth area are a prime political target for the Trump administration for the 2018 elections. So it's not a surprise to me that he's already devoting some early attention to it. And I suppose just the it probably has spillover not only in the 8th Congressional District, but uh, uh, the governor's race, the U.S. Senate race, and, and all of the others, right? Right, and northern Wisconsin, too. Yeah, well, yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but the, the 8th is clearly a battleground just in and of itself, right, for, mm-hmm. for Republicans. I mean, they have a, a reasonable chance at that one, don't they? Yeah, uh, the 8th Congressional District is very much in play. Uh, the Democratic incumbent, Rick Nolan, has won by 5,000 votes each the last two elections. Democrats are facing a big problem in that they have five candidates running in the primary, whereas the Republican primary includes one major candidate uh, who is also a Duluth uh, elected official. So Democrats uh, have a real challenge here, and Trump knows that, and that's why he's going to Duluth. Do you think that uh, part of the strategy is now we've obviously got things really in a state of flux in the primary election coming up in August for both Republicans and Democrats? But talk a little bit about what you think potential strategy may be there. Well, I think uh, Trump wants to roil the waters and uh, create controversy and in that way uh, further uh, frustrate Democrats who are already fighting amongst themselves. You have to understand that the 8th Congressional District in Minnesota is one of the very few districts in the whole country that looks like a real possibility of a Republican pickup. And so that's another reason why Trump is going. Do you think that uh, that he would, uh, as an example in a race for governor, would, would he potentially state a preference there, do you think, uh, among um, the Republicans? You know, or is uh, it, it's, or is you that... can lose a lot of money predicting what the president yeah. would say. So I'm not really sure that he will wade into any particular primary, but I do believe what this indicates is that Trump will be back to Minnesota 
uh, throughout the election season because he sees Minnesota as a big electoral opportunity for the Republicans. That's Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear. Now let's bring in our other intrepid political analyst, Hamlin University professor David Schultz, to further explore the effects of the president's impending visit to Minnesota. I think it acknowledges two things. First, the fact that it is a potential pickup for the Republicans and how close it is in terms of a seat. And second, it also speaks to how competitive control of the U.S. Congress's House of Representatives is at this point, where if the Democrats can pick up 24 seats, um, they can tra- take back control of Congress. That's a long shot. It's, it's, it's a long battle, um, but it also requires the Democrats to hold critical seats, such as the 8th District. And if the Republicans can either pick up the 8th or force the Democrats to have to put a lot of resources into holding that, um, that makes the Democrats' takeover of Congress even more complicated. Does this have um, any, I don't know, for lack of a better term, coattail effect in some of the other races? I'm talking about races like United States Senate, maybe even governor. Um, What do you think? Well, yes, it does. In fact, this is actually interesting because a few years ago, I did some research um, and found that it was actually the congressional races in Minnesota that seemed to have the strongest coattail effect in terms of finding that the candidates running for Congress seemed to also drive the votes for, for, for Senate, for state legislature, and so forth. And if that's the case, if that's still the case, then bringing people out in the 8th District um, who are supporting the Republican candidate um, because they support in part Donald Trump will also have potentially an impact in terms of some of the state legislative seats up there, which have been mostly Democrat but are starting now, and especially in the southern parts of the 8th District, to trail, um, or to trail Republican. There's a ver- some very stark differences between Democrats and Republicans, at least traditional Democrats and Republicans, uh, on some issues like mining, as an example. I would assume the president's issue will, will or the president's visit, rather, would bring that issue really into focus. I think so. I think the mining issue um, is one area. I think guns, I think uh, um, abortion are three big issues that, that I think divide Republicans and Democrats, not just in the 8th District, but statewide also. And think about also where the presidential visit becomes important here, is that if the president can, let's say, increase turnout in the 8th District for people who are voting Republican, that has an impact overall in terms of, in terms of um, other state races, specifically the gubernatorial race. That's Hamlin University professor David Schultz. Most analysts think the president, after his Duluth visit, will be back to Minnesota at least one more time before the November election. So, Scott, with a superheated primary and then the big push after the Minnesota State Fair, it should be a politically interesting summer and fall. Very good, Bill. Thank you for that report. More Minnesota Matters in a moment. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. 
Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single, boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Suicide is a major public health problem and a leading cause of death in the United States. Tasha Radel takes a closer look. The recent suicides of two well-known figures has brought the topic back into the headlines and underscoring a sobering reality. Joining me now is Dr. Dan Reidenberg, Executive Director of Minnesota-based SAVE, Suicide Awareness Voices of Education. Well, it, it is true the the tragic deaths of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain have raised some of the consciousness around this topic. Uh, add to that the uh, recent uh, CDC report on the increase in suicides uh, really has underscored the, the need for everybody to really begin to look at this as a serious public health issue that we all have a role to play in doing something about to prevent these absolutely horrible tragedies. And when we look at suicide here in Minnesota, how common is it here in our in our state, Dan? Well, suicide isn't common. Uh, it isn't common anywhere, but it is a, a, a real problem. Uh, we're losing over 700 people a year to suicide in Minnesota, so you've got almost two a day that are dying by suicide just here. And we've seen over the last decade or more now uh, increases in suicide in our state every year. Every year, the recent CDC report found almost 40% increase in suicides in Minnesota from 1999 to 2016. So it is, it is a real issue. It's a serious issue. And it cuts across all ages and races and demographics and across the state. Many people think that it's uh, something that just happens in the Twin Cities metro area. But, in fact, we know that suicide in the rural communities throughout the state uh, is also very high. And a lot of times, um, is it fair to say that uh, in in some of these cases that mental illness plays a role uh, when it comes to suicide, death by suicide? So what we know about mental health and and suicide uh, from research studies around the world is that 90% of the time, uh, there is a psychiatric illness at the time of death. Now, that's not always diagnosed. It might be misdiagnosed. And in fact, the most recent CDC study that just came out last week said uh, that in about half of the cases, uh, people who died by suicide did not have a known mental health condition. doesn't mean that it wasn't there. It just wasn't diagnosed or known by those around the people. But we do know that by and large, nine times out of ten, there is some kind of mental health problem taking place uh, around someone who's died by suicide. When you add to that um, external stressors, life's adversities, such as losses, transitions, financial problems, occupational problems, even substance abuse problems, we start to see where all of these things mount for people and become very, very great risk of suicide. And are there signs or symptoms that um, people can be watching for? There are a number of signs and symptoms that people can look for when 
thinking about if somebody might be at risk of suicide. First of all, we want to notice if somebody is talking about suicide, if they're verbalizing uh, statements that may not be direct, they might not say, I'm going to kill myself, but they might say things like, I'm just a burden to everyone, or it would be better off if I wasn't around. When you combine that with somebody who's looking for ways to die or looking for methods that, that they might use to take their life, maybe making statements about the fact that they're in this horrible pain and anguish that just won't go away or hopelessness and despair or even having no purpose in life any longer. Those statements combined with these behaviors, withdrawal, uh, pulling away from people in their life, any kind of uncharacteristic behavior change such as uh, sudden anxiety or anxiousness, restlessness, all of these things combined are the things we want people to pay attention to and uh, to ask more about if they see it. And, you know, one of the things I, th- I think that is sometimes overlooked is, is after a loss, you know, losing uh, someone. Um, any, any advice to those folks? So anytime we have someone who's lost someone to suicide, it is this tragedy that just uh, doesn't seem to end for them. The, this kind of death is very different than other kinds of death. There is a sense of guilt. There is a sense of shame. There's the stigma around suicide uh, that it plagues and lives on for the survivors. It's really important that uh, we make sure that those who are left behind after a suicide uh, are still uh, considered valued and important people in our lives, that we don't ignore them, we don't walk away from them, that we continue to involve them in all of our uh, other parts of life. Uh, too often we see them uh, isolated and alone. And we actually see increases in risk of suicide for survivors uh, because of some of these things and their thoughts about uh, what they did or didn't do right when we know that that isn't what suicide's about. So it's really important for those of us that are around survivors, those family members that are left behind, to make sure we continue talking to them, supporting them, and helping uh, them understand that this this is a lifelong process of trying to grapple with a, a why question. Why did I lose this loved one when there may not be an answer to it? Well, lots of great information, Dan, and I know I'm about out of time. Anything else that you wanted to, to bring up today that maybe I didn't hit on? I think it's really important for everybody to know that it's not just doctors that uh, save people's lives. It's really all of us that uh, have a part and a role in saving people's lives. We know that the more care and concern that you can express to someone who might be at risk of suicide, and the more genuine you are in doing that, is really critical in helping save people's lives. Same thing with follow-up care after someone's been hospitalized for suicidal thinking or a suicide attempt. If we can follow up and we can stay connected to people, build a support network and support system for people that's not just a one-time check-in, but ongoing, we can help people through these crises and they can go on and live a normal, functioning life. Recovery is really possible from these illnesses and even from a suicide attempt. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Dan Reidenberg, Executive Director of Minnesota-based SAVE. For more information, head to save.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. (music) 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's a scenario parents are all too familiar with. It's a beautiful, inviting summer day. The birds are chirping, the sun's shining, and the kids are holed up in the house with their eyes on a screen. I recently chatted with Park Nicollet pediatrician Dr. Nathan Chomolo on the dangers of too much screen time and what parents can do to get their kids engaged in the world around them. There was actually a recent study that just came out looking specifically at teenagers and screen time, and they found that increased screen use, and they looked at different types of screen use, so whether it's social media, surfing the web, watching TVs or movies, uh, or doing gaming with video games, it led to decreased sleep, uh, and this increased depressive symptoms, um, and that they felt that among the different activities, gaming had a significantly stronger relationship to depression symptoms, and so... Uh, we know that uh, it really interrupts with kind of what we would be, we would think would be an ideal activity uh, throughout a child's summer life, and so they might be spending more time in front of screens instead of getting outside and doing exercise or different activities, uh, learning and expanding their growth and knowledge. And what advice do you have for parents who uh, I think increasingly have to convince their children to get off the screens and, and engage in other activities? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I kind of put advice in two different categories. There's practical and aspirational. Uh, and when you talk about practical things you can do to decrease the amount of time we're using with their screens, the first thing, which is probably the hardest thing for parents, I include myself in this, is, uh, you know, setting the example. So putting the screens down ourselves, uh, having some specific screen-free time. So the, the times that we talked about in pediatrics in particular are around dinner time. Everyone puts their, their screens down, including mom and dad, uh, and, and before bed. And we know that, again, we talked a little bit just about that recent study, but that screens can really interfere with sleep. Then uh, there's other uh, kind of more practical steps you can do at home. So if your child is really into particular video game or video video game systems, uh, there are some like Nintendo and Xbox One that have parental controls and timers where you can actually set how much time is spent playing on those every day. Other practical steps include getting the screens out of bedrooms. So that is where we can run into a lot of issues is with uh, children who are staying up late and parents don't really know that they're spending all this time on the screen because the screen's in their bedroom. And so that includes not only TVs and computers, but actually taking the cell phones and tablets out at night saying that you get those back in the morning. And then trying to create some family routines just around generally spending time together. And so, you know, whether it's a certain weekend day uh, or weekday evening activity where you all go take a walk to the park where you all maybe it is spending some time around a screen like watching a certain tv show uh, or you spend an evening watching movies that you do it together and so people aren't isolated around these screens doctor with regards to depression you mentioned a little bit earlier that that can be a, a kind of an effect from being on screens too often and depression is something obviously that's been kind of in the spotlight front for the news recently here what should parents do if they notice changes in behavior of their children, if it's related to screen time or anything else, really? What, what's the best steps they can take? Yeah, so, you know, we always recommend that they uh, talk to their children first and then, you know, certainly talk to uh, the school um, or if they're in, involved in a camp or, you know, summertime program, talk to the adults that are working with them there as well. Uh, but then come talk to us uh, in clinic. So, so whether it's your pediatrician, your family practice provider, 
um, uh, and the certain symptoms that we see that we get concerned about uh, when it comes to children and teens in depression is maybe they're more sleepy and they feel like they're sleeping all the time. They're less interested in uh, things that normally bring them lots of joy. So even maybe you know, screen time actually drops off because they're no longer interested in playing their normal video games or watching their movies because they just have a general lack of interest. Um, and then more nonspecific complaints, so headaches, stomach pain, um, uh, those are things that uh, we see that can be related to um, depression and things like anxiety. Um, and so talking to your uh, child's pediatrician or family practice provider about these symptoms uh, and we can help start and tease out, you know, if there are concerns for depression and then we can t- talk about the next steps from there. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Nathan Chomolo. Minnesota Matters returns after this. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make some breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The 2018 Special Olympics Minnesota Summer Games are scheduled for next weekend in St. Paul. More than 3,000 young athletes will take part in a variety of sports on the University of St. Thomas campus. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Special Olympics Minnesota Chief Executive Officer Dave Dorn to preview the great event. Kind of an exciting week upcoming, Dave. Uh, kind of take us through uh, how exciting and what a fun time this is leading up to your big weekend next weekend in St. Paul. Sure. I mean, this, uh, this weekend is the culmination of many, many weeks of athletes uh, training uh, for this upcoming event. And as they have started, and this, is, this will cover uh, athletes that will be competing in track and field, athletes that will be competing in swimming, athletes that will be competing in gymnastics, and athletes that will be competing in basketball. So we'll have over 3,500 athletes uh, and coaches uh, at St. Thomas, along with all their families and spectators that come out, uh, but all these people have been, uh, all these athletes have been training. Uh, they've had area competitions in their particular areas of the state. We've had regional competitions, and now uh, they're traveling here to the Twin Cities to compete at the University of St. Thomas for the state competition. So it's it's a really exciting time, and with so many people, uh, it, it's really really a fun time as well. And that, that was my next question. You hit on it briefly there. These are athletes from all over the state. What uh, what kind of accomplishments did they make to earn the bid to get to compete in this state this coming weekend? Sure. So everybody that is competing here this weekend has to have competed at a local level. So our athletes, as long if once they com- if they compete at a local level, then they can advance on to um, to the state games. Um, and so 
All of them, like I said, have been training since, some of them have been training since beginning of the year, actually, uh, when you talk about basketball. Um, and then, you know, as soon as they can uh, start training indoors for track and swimming, it uh, all starts. So they've, they've all been practicing and, and training for about three months. Uh, they've all had, the state is divided up into 13 areas, and each area has had its own local, bas- you know, basketball, swimming, track and field events. Uh, so there's been... Um, literally, you know, 50 events that have gone on throughout the state over these last three months, um, leading up to this particular uh, this, this particular competition coming up. Dave Dorn is the CEO of Special Olympics Minnesota. He's with us here on Minnesota Matters, um, and it's not just the competition, right? There's a lot of other fun things going on. You have a Victory Village and some social events, concerts. Uh, it sounds like it's a, a all encompassing weekend. Yeah, it is. You know, it's it's a really uh, great weekend of community and inclusive activities and camaraderie, um, and and a time actually for the the whole neighborhood and and the Twin Cities area to come out and be a part of it. Not only to watch, but also participate in, in the other events. Like you said, uh, there, there's you know. Uh, Victory Village, which has different games of uh, uh, to play, like you would see at a carnival type games. Uh, there is um, a celebration ceremonies that kicks off on June 22nd. That's hosted by Fox 9's Ian Leonard. Uh, there's a, a band, a local band, Vivo Knievel, uh, which is their fantastic band. They play locally here. Uh, you know, around around the Twin Cities area, and they, they're uh, playing that evening. So it's free, and all that's free and open to the public to come on out and, and not only see ceremonies, be, listen to the concert, but also participate in all the other events that we have going on there. And then you mentioned folks can come and watch. Certainly family and friends of these great athletes will be there to watch. But uh, people that have interest in this, it's so exciting. There's so many good stories to cheer for here. If someone wants to come and watch, uh, kind of take us through some of the scheduling and how they can do that. Sure. You know, it's fantastic uh, th- that um, people get a chance to look. And, you know, one thing we talked about, 3,500 athletes and coaches that will be out there today. What most people don't know is, you know, several hundred uh, of those athletes are actually athletes that do not have an intellectual disability. So p- typically, or historically, people have thought of Special Olympics as a place that where athletes are, have to be someone who has an intellectual disability. And actually, what you, what, what you see the future of Special Olympics is it's really all about inclusive activities. And so you will see a unified basketball tournament going on there where half the athletes on the court do not have an intellectual disability. So, and that's really the future of Special Olympics. Celebra- uh, Special Olympics is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year um, worldwide uh, when it was first founded by Eunice Kennedy Shriver. And, and it's done such marvelous things from a few hundred athletes in your backyard to now um, over 5 million athletes in 172 countries. But what, what's really exciting is the future is you're seeing more and more of these participants be people that don't necessarily have an intellectual disability. And so while we're, we've become so much more accepting as a society, right, now what we're really pushing is that, we're, that we are going to be inclusive as well. And so that's a really exciting point, and that's what's really got 
people like ESPN um, on board. So ESPN is a worldwide sponsor of Unified Sports, which is inclusive sports. Uh, we're sending a unified basketball team, a unified flag football team to the USA Games in Seattle shortly after our, our state competition. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, let's hope for some great weather, a great crowd, and a lot of great fun. We appreciate it, Dave. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Mike. We really appreciate you talking about it. That's Mike Grimm with Special Olympics Minnesota CEO Dave Dorn. For more information, you can log on to specialolympicsminnesota.org. A full schedule of events is listed there. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.